Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Our gut is like the engine of our body, turning nourishment into energy. When there's a problem with that process, it can not only cause uncomfortable sensations, but it could be life-threatening. Belly pain and gut health, tonight on Call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. Welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc as we celebrate our 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. Joining us tonight here in our studio on the South Dakota State University campus in Brookings is Dr. Christina Hill Jensen of Avera Medical Group Gastroenterology, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and Dr. Teresa Wee Trudeau from Avera Medical Group Specialty Care in Brookings, South Dakota. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Yes. So um, we're going to tackle any kind of belly questions today. We've got a gastroenterologist and a general surgeon. I think we're ready to go. Mm -hmm. um, let's start. It's kind of a hot topic is that our guidelines for colon, for cancer, colon cancer are recently changing. Christy, can you tell us yeah, a little bit about absolutely. how that's changed recently? Yeah, so we are now going to age 45. So it's mm -hmm. uh, an exciting thing. 45 for men and women and we're also extending the age as well. So instead of saying okay stop at age 75 we can go all the way up to 85 if appropriate. Mm -hmm. So these are really great changes and I'm excited. Um, your insurance, you know, they should be paying for it. So yeah, we're excited to get all these patients in because we've seen a really, unfortunately, a sharp uptick in patients younger than 40 with colon cancer. Yeah. Do we know anything about why that is, Teresa? Or it's just we see the data and we're responding? I think it's more that we see the data and yeah. we're responding. I also think it's multifactorial, our diets and um, the environment that we live in these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And colonoscopy, like people are kind of scared of this sometimes. From what I understand, everyone hates the prep. Can you tell us, like, has the prep changed there are Since some, maybe yeah. some people had their last one 10 or 20 years ago. I think so. Yeah. I, I think there's some better alternatives. Yeah. We have a, a, a smaller volume prep. Mm -hmm. We do a Gatorade prep. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you mix some Miralax with Gatorade and we split dose the prep. So you're not consuming this whole gallon of prep yeah. all at once. So I think it has been better. Yeah. It seems, mm -hmm. it seems that people yeah. are responding that way. Um, let's start with some questions and um, we look forward to answering your questions about tonight's topic belly pain and gut health, call 1-888-376-6225, send an email to ask at prairie.org or ask on our prairie.org Facebook page. And to encourage your questions, those of you who ask a question during the first 20 minutes of tonight's program will be entered into a drawing for one of our prairie.org gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of the program. Your question will remain anonymous, but be sure to provide your name and contact information when you submit your questions so we can contact the winner. So we do already have a couple questions. Um, I've got an email from a viewer in Mowbridge. Is it normal to have several forceful loose stools a day and should I be concerned about that? 
You want to start, Christy? Well, we say a normal stool pattern, three per day to three per week. Mm -hmm. uh, the fourth stool part, I would have to ask more questions about. Yeah. So I would say definitely go talk to your primary care provider, mm -hmm. and then he or she can point you in the right direction with that. Yeah. Sometimes sorting out what's on the spectrum of normal versus abnormal, especially when it comes to stools and diarrhea, mm -hmm. is hard, isn't it, Teresa? Like, what are what are some red flags? What things should a patient really not wait to come talk to their doctor about when it comes to stool pattern? Well, definitely the colors that should be um, red flags would be if you have red stools or black stools. Mm -hmm. And then from the surgical standpoint, if you have white stools, that also concerns me as well. Sure. Um, now in stool pattern, it's really kind of you know, how the person feels. So mm -hmm. like if they're having three bowel movements a week and they're super uncomfortable with it or it was a change in their bowel habits, yeah. then that's concerning as well. Sure. Um, but if they're used to having three bowel movements a week and they're not uncomfortable, then that can be completely normal. Right, right. Do you have anything to add? Nope, yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, we have a person who's watching on Facebook who asked, why are fermented foods supposed to be good for the gut? Do you have anything on that, Christina? I think there's a lot of stuff out there about foods and gut health. What's real? Well, yeah, and it's hard. I mean, when you're walking through the grocery store right. and you see this, you know, cool headline, mm -hmm. you can't necessarily believe that. But right. we do believe fermented foods feed the healthy bacteria in our gut or what we call the microbiome mm -hmm. or microbiota. Right. And so that will, will help with digestion. Mm -hmm. Are there certain foods that really are bad for gut health, Teresa? It probably depends on what your issues are, right? Right. Yeah. I would say it depends on what you're experiencing. You know, mm -hmm. there are people who have had, say, a cholecystectomy, and then if they eat higher fat foods, that they end up having diarrhea. And so it really just depends on the person if there's really bad food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And there are certain food intolerances out there, and how do we sort some of those out? Well, we, I think the easiest would be an elimination diet. Yeah. So, um, you know, taking dairy out, which is the most common, 40% right. of Caucasians will lose the ability to tolerate dairy. Yeah. Um, gluten, as well, is unfortunately another food intolerance. Mm -hmm. um, and we have certain testing as well where we can check for food intolerance also. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned dairy as a big one. Um, and so common, right? And some people I think have the misperception that they can't get lactose intolerant later in life. So that oh, yeah. happens, right? Yeah, in it's, adulthood. it's very common to lose um, the ability for our lactase enzyme to actually break down lactose. So no, so it doesn't have to be, well, I could tolerate milk as a child and now all of a sudden something's different. It, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't have to be, well, I couldn't as a child. So yeah, it, it is something that we can see as an adult ages, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. great. Um, we're getting some more questions in. So a caller from Rapid City um, states that they were diagnosed with H. pylori. So let's start there. What is H. pylori, Teresa? So H. pylori is a bacterium that can be found in your gut um, and it can cause a lot of problems such as gastritis, um, gastric ulcers, and it has also been linked to some cancers too. Mm -hmm. So Yeah. Um, so this person states that they got it um, they lost a bunch of weight. They did a. They were on antibiotics after they were diagnosed. Is there a blood test to look and see after you've been treated? Um, if, if it's been treated, it sounds like they're still having some symptoms a long ways out from treatment. So let's start with, I guess, how do we treat H. pylori and 
how do we know if it's gone? So there, it's a combination of medications, mm -hmm. um, and it really depends on the area of the country you're in because there's a high resistance to antibiotics. So it's commonly two antibiotics in combination with a medicine that will decrease acid. Mm -hmm. How do we know if we've eradicated it? Well, in about 10 to 12 weeks after treatment, we will then perform a stool test to mm -hmm. see if there's any presence of that uh, uh, H. pylori. Yeah, good. So the stool test is probably the best for making sure that it's gone. Um, we have a woman from Webster who feels very bloated no matter what he eats. What causes bloating and that symptom? Oh, that's a very hard question. Um, there's just so much stuff that can cause bloating and that symptom. And everybody kind of describes that symptom a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really hard to just kind of say what causes that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, are there concerning things that can cause bloating, Christy? Well, I mean, if it goes back to perhaps a, a major change in your stool pattern and now you feel as though you're tight like a drum and you can't pass stool, I would be very concerned with that. Mm -hmm. If you start to have very strong smelling belching that smells almost um, like stools, I'd mm -hmm. be concerned about that. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and tell us a little bit about um, the different procedures that we do to help diagnose. So we talked a little bit about colonoscopy. What, what's an EGD or an upper endoscopy? So an upper scope yeah. is a long flexible tube with mm -hmm. a light and camera on the end of it. Uh, the patient is asleep on his or her side and then we slip the, the small scope about the size of my finger um, down the back of the throat into the esophagus and that way we can visualize the esophagus, stomach and the first portion of the small bowel or duodenum. Mm -hmm. um, it's a pretty common procedure, yeah. yeah. Why do we do that procedure, Teresa? Um, well, we do it to look for anything that could be going on in the upper abdomen in terms of if the person's having abdominal pain, mm -hmm. sometimes for bloating, mm -hmm. um, you know, also following reflux. Uh, if a person has had Barrett's esophagus, mm -hmm. uh, that would be another reason to do it. Um, and so those are type, some of those reasons. Yeah, good. And so we have good ways to look at that first part of the gut. We have mm -hmm. good ways to look at the colon. Mm -hmm. And then there's this big part of the gut that it's harder to look at, right? Mm -hmm. The whole small bowel. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what, are, what do we do if you have concerns that there might be something going on in the small bowel? Well, there's first some great x-ray type studies, mm -hmm. a special type of CAT scan called a CT enterography, an MRI called mm -hmm. an MR enterography. But what we like to do is called a pill camera or video capsule endoscopy. Mm -hmm. And it is a pill the size of a vitamin that has a camera flash and a battery. And it takes 60,000 pictures of the small bowel. Wow. But the nervous part is it could get stuck, right? If there's mm -hmm. something abnormal in there. Um, but that's a very rare thing, fortunately. And we have mm -hmm. to do it in the right patient. Yeah, good. Uh, Prairie Doc physician Andrew Ellsworth talks about the importance of getting a colonoscopy procedure early to avoid future complications. Prairie Doc reporter Esther Michael spoke with Dr. Ellsworth about the procedure. Colonoscopy is a procedure used to help look for cancer or an abnormality in the colon. A flexible colonoscope is used to go into the rectum and into the large colon in the intestines, the bowel. The scope is up to five and a half feet long and is quite small, I mean maybe the size of my finger, and flexible. Dr. Ellsworth says many patients shy away from colonoscopy preparation. However, talking to your health provider may help create a smoother preparation before the procedure.
Colonoscopy is recommended now for everyone starting age 45 to help detect colon cancer early. It's also recommended if someone has rectal bleeding or blood in their stool, black or bloody stools, abdominal pain, diarrhea, or maybe if they have a strong family history of colon cancer, they may want to have a colonoscopy earlier than age 45. Patients should be hydrated during preparation for the procedure. They should not hesitate to ask their health provider, so they may suggest a more gentle alternative. The colonoscopy procedure often takes maybe half an hour or less, sometimes up to an hour. That can depend if how many polyps there are or the reasons for the colonoscopy. It's done as an outpatient procedure, so often you'll come maybe an hour or so before the procedure, have it, be in recovery for half an hour, an hour or so after the procedure, and then go home. We recommend having someone else drive you home because of the anesthesia. Oftentimes a person, once they wake up, they're often feeling back to normal and can eat something and uh, go home and might not have any symptom. Ellsworth says risk of a colonoscopy procedure may vary and to be on the lookout for any post-surgical difficulties. As with any procedure, there's risk of infection or bleeding or, or pain or discomfort. There's always risk with anesthesia. The anesthesia is, is sedation, so it's just a matter of giving you a medication through an IV to help you sleep, and then it's turned off and you wake up again. Um, risk from the procedure, from the colonoscopy, the biggest risk would be perforation. That rate is quite rare and less than one in a thousand. Sometimes nothing may need to be done, but sometimes that could require surgery as well. That could happen from a, a hole or a puncture or tear in the colon during colonoscopy. There'd be risk of bleeding from having a polyp removed, and that bleeding could occur right then or sometimes could occur weeks later. So that's something to watch for after a colonoscopy. bit of colonoscopy. We use this often for colon cancer screening. Are there other options for colon cancer screening, Christy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's stool testing. Yeah. And so the Cologuard is one you probably see on TV mm -hmm. advertised, but it is now kind of taking over and it's a very good and reliable study. So perhaps mm -hmm. if you're hesitant to undergo that full colonoscopy, please talk to your primary care provider about a Cologuard or other sure. type of highly sensitive stool studies. Yeah. Usually when I talk to my patients about that, I, I make sure that we say, if this is positive, I'm going to recommend a colonoscopy. Mm -hmm. There may be a small number of people out there who just will never do it no matter what, but um, we want to make sure that they know that's a possibility. Are there people who, sh who are not good candidates for Cologuard testing? Maybe people that are not average risk? What would that right. mean, Teresa? Anybody who is a higher risk yeah. is not supposed to undergo Cologuard testing, and that would be somebody who has family history and a first sure. degree relative, or if they've had a history of polyps themselves. Yeah. Also, if they're having symptoms, they should not have a Cologuard test. It is only for the asymptomatic people. Yeah, good. Um, so we're getting some questions in. I have a woman from Brookings wondering if we could talk about diverticulitis. She has it. She's wondering if there are suggestions on what her diet should consist of and any advice on probiotics. So um, I think sometimes there's confusion about these terminologies. So what is diver, let's start with our diverticulitis. 
diverticulosis. What is that, Teresa? So diverticulosis is the pockets that mm -hmm. can be in the colon. Those are pockets that form along blood vessels because of tension on the colon wall. Mm -hmm. um, and so more common if a person has constipation, but even if you don't have constipation, people can develop them. Uh, diverticulitis, though, is the inflammation of those pockets. Mm -hmm. And so a person can have diverticulosis and never have diverticulitis. Right but not vice versa. So often people won't have symptoms of osis, diverticulosis, right? But what does diverticulitis look like? What symptoms do people usually get, Christy? Pain in the left side and yeah. fever. Yeah. And, it, it, and it's considerable pain. It's not just, well, right. oh, I maybe ate something, I feel a little uncomfortable. It's a considerable pain. Yeah, yeah, and so often we'll do a CAT scan that helps us diagnose that. Um, and usually mild cases are treated with antibiotics, but sometimes people like you, Teresa, the, the surgeons see them if right. it gets severe. So. Um, what happens with diverticulitis to lead to surgery in some cases? So that's another thing that's kind of been changing mm -hmm. in terms of what is recommended for surgical intervention for diverticulitis. It used to be that if you had two episodes of diverticulitis that you would be seeing a surgeon and talking about taking that portion of your colon out. Mm -hmm. However, now they say that if you are able to be treated with antibiotics and it's not very often that you're having it, that honestly you may not have to ever undergo surgery. Sure. Now there are times where you can have a complication with diverticulitis like a perforation which would make you have surgery emergently right. um, or you might have to have a drain place too if you have an abscess develop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. So if you see people with diverticulosis on a colonoscopy, they're not having symptoms, are there things that you advise them to not eat? Is there good evidence with that, Christy? No, there yeah, isn't good shoot. evidence. I mean, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, mm -hmm. it was don't eat nut seeds or popcorn, but we, we really have proven that that's not true. Mm -hmm. So we say a high fiber diet, staying active and keeping weight down. Mm -hmm. Those three things have actually have more science behind it than the avoidance of nuts or seeds or popcorn. Okay. Good. And how about probiotics? Is there any role for probiotics in diverticulitis or is no, there good evidence? Still in not health? good evidence yeah. behind it, no. Yeah. It's, there's there's so much out there about probiotics. Mm -hmm. I think some patients do find that they feel better for whatever reason taking them, but we haven't found great evidence mm -hmm. to recommend them strongly in a lot of cases, right? Mm -hmm. Good. Um, there's a viewer from Flandreau who had surgery last June. This person is still having difficulty getting their bowels back to normal and using Miralax. So um, I, I assume they're experiencing some post-operative constipation. Is this a common thing that you see, Teresa? What happens to the gut after surgery? Yeah, there I we can see a lot of either way where mm -hmm. it changes um, to you know, more looser stools or even constipation. Mm -hmm. And um, there's just a lot of things that go into it and it's hard to say exactly what's going on with, with that patient there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, are there things that you do first line for people with chronic constipation if you find that there's not a, a sinister reason for it? Christina, sure. what do you think about yeah. Miralax, no, for example? No, we love Miralax. Yeah, it's love been Miralax over too. the counter for 15 <laughs> years. It's been approved for long-term use even yeah. in children. So we know it's safe and we know it's effective. And yeah. what I like is the patient can titrate the dose up mm -hmm. and down. So you know that patient will know his or her bowels better than I ever will. Mm -hmm. So he or she can have one dose a day, two, all the way up to four capsules yeah. per day if needed so it's a very good and safe medication to use yeah great um, if you have a polyp in your gallbladder should you be concerned and should you monitor it so sometimes we'll find these on accident right the the 
infamous incidental loma. So what do we know about gallbladder polyps, Teresa? So gallbladder polyps um, usually are like a collection of cholesterol that ends up being under the mucosa and so then it ends up forming like a polyp. Also, there are some times where they, that it can be called a polyp just because it's not moving when they're doing the ultrasound. And so that can be more of actually just a stone that's stuck in that area. So just something that's in the wall of the gallbladder. Mm -hmm. We can't really tell what it is on an ultrasound and everything right. gets called a polyp. Yeah, are there things about polyps that make them more likely to be something to be concerned about that would lead to a gallbladder removal? The size, yeah. um, you know, based on the size, but also based on the patient's symptoms. If they're having symptoms that are classic for gallbladder disease mm -hmm. and they have a polyp, then our concern is, is this actually a stone that just was not moving at that time? Sure, okay. Mm -hmm. um, we have a, an emailer ask if there are any surgical procedures for a patient with severe GERD or reflux disease. So let's talk a little bit about reflux. What is reflux? How do we typically treat it? And then maybe we can ask about surgery. Sure. Yeah. So acid reflux, it's acid made in the bottom part of the stomach coming back up into the esophagus. Mm -hmm. We all do it. Right. It happens from birth until death, but it's when that bottom part of the esophagus, the sphincter becomes weakened and more acid comes up. Mm -hmm. So traditionally we start with decreasing acid and mm -hmm. allowing that sphincter to heal up and to tighten up again and using medications that are called H2 blockers mm -hmm. uh, like famidine or mm -hmm. pepsid or stronger medicines like omeprazole, mm -hmm. Nexium, Prilosec. So we would give that a good eight-week trial and see how that patient does before they come into our clinic. Yeah, and are there lifestyle or diet things that can help with reflux? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, weight loss is a big one. Mm -hmm. Elevation of the head of the bed, smaller meals, avoidance. Uh, we talk about avoidance of the foods which can trigger that, highly acidic foods, mm -hmm. decreasing coffee, yeah. trying not to eat or drink a few hours before bedtime as sure. well. Sure. And then how about surgery? I mean, who? how bad does it have to be to want to have surgery and what, what exists out there for surgery, Teresa? So it, you know, has to be bad enough that their symptoms, oh, I would send them to you, <laughs> to have um, a pH and manometry study done to see exactly what they are having for acid coming up into the esophagus and to quantify that a little bit more than just the symptoms that they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And then also um, we check the musculature of the esophagus mm -hmm. to make sure that if we do a surgical procedure on the per person that they're actually going to be able to continue to get food down. Gotcha. Um, the reason being is because there's a few different things that can be done for surgery wise and one of those is the classic Nissen fundopication which is a wrap of the stomach around the lower end of the uh, around the lower end of the esophagus mm -hmm. to basically recreate that lower esophageal sphincter. Mm -hmm. um, you can do a partial wrap if the person's esophagus isn't working well enough and so that's why that manometry portion of it is so important. Mm -hmm. um, there are some newer things out now as well. Um, they had started with some clips that, that was called the TIFF. Um, I haven't seen a lot of people doing that around here, but one that's become a little bit more popular is called the Lynx procedure, mm -hmm. which is um, uh, magnets that are placed around the lower portion of the esophagus to again recreate that lower esophageal sphincter. Gotcha. So there are some things out there for the very severe. Um, we had a viewer asked, does the practice of intermittent fasting have any value for digestive health? Has there been research on that at all that you um, know? There's been a little bit and yeah. you know, possibly it's good to kind of give the GI system a rest, mm -hmm. um, but I haven't seen a lot of strong data yet. Maybe mm -hmm. in theory mm -hmm. is, is the best that yeah. we have right now, okay. 
We have a woman from Oneida who was diagnosed with a small abdominal aortic aneurysm four years ago at a screening event. What symptoms should we, she watch for and how worried should she be? You wanna take this one, Teresa? <laughs> okay. Um, it depends on the size. It depends on yeah. the size. The mm -hmm. abdominal aortic aneurysms, um, the size is very important because it was once you get to five centimeters usually, and this is going back to training for me to, to tell you about this, um, but once it gets to five centimeters, then the risk of having it actually burst, it goes up significantly, and that's the point when we repair those. Mm -hmm. um, and so symptoms from it, it a pulsatile mass, mm -hmm. um, and so if you start feeling it a little bit more, I think that, that would be something to watch. But there are certain sizes that your doctor will follow it. Yeah. Um, and so just be sure you're following up with your yeah. doctor on a regular basis. Yeah, and that's what I would say too. You know, if, if my patient brought that screening to me, mm -hmm. then we know we can look right. at it annually to see if it's growing and see if referral to a vascular surgeon would be warranted. Um, good, a woman from Sioux Falls is wondering if we could talk about SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. How does one get this and how do they overcome it? This is a great one for yeah. you, Christy. Let's hear it. So yeah. SIBO is yeah. kind of a, one of mm -hmm. the popular terms yeah. now. So, um, so we all have a, a certain number of bacteria within our, our small bowel and um, the role that bacteria play I think is very important, uh, maybe even with immune type um, disorders. So when one strain flourishes, uh, the bacterial balance becomes out of balance mm -hmm. and some symptoms would be uh, problems with bloat, diarrhea, discomfort. Mm -hmm. How do we get it? Well, we think that some people who've had recurrent antibiotic usage, mm -hmm. one strain will really flourish while those others perhaps are more suppressed. So mm -hmm. we can test for that. Um, one way to do is with an upper scope. We will pull out the aspirate mm -hmm. from the jejunum, the bacteria. That's really not done, yeah. um, but we do breath testing for it very mm -hmm. frequently, and that's something that I do in my practice. Mm -hmm. And then we treat with antibiotics depending on the type of bacteria, what they're producing, if they're methane, or hydrogen producing bacteria as well. Gotcha. And then hopefully that person will start to not have diarrhea, right. not be as bloated. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. nice to actually sort of treat and yes. kind of cure those people. Mm -hmm. I've run into problems with the right antibiotics being mm -hmm. covered though. Is that an issue that you it see can frequently be. with yeah. Rifaximin? Yeah, mm -hmm. unfortunately one of the best ones is extremely expensive. Yeah. So mm -hmm. we've got, you know, second choice, a third gotcha. choice out there too. Good. Um, a Facebook viewer states she is taking pantoprazole for six months after having stomach pain and diagnosed with reflux. How long should she stay on the medication? Great question. What do you tell people about staying on their proton pump inhibitors? So um, it's really, I would say, from my standpoint, a case by case. Yeah you know, thing. Uh, it is one that if they're able to get off of it, mm -hmm. I would try to get them off, you know, as quickly as possible after that eight weeks. If mm -hmm. they've, if their symptoms have gone away, then just wean off of it. But if their symptoms come back, you know, and then you need to look for other things um, causing it. And if they're better on it, they may need to be on it longer term. Yeah. My patients, we don't really know until we try if you've right. been on it for a good two or three months. But we're, we as physicians are not always good at stopping medications, right? right? I just sure. had this conversation with a patient today. He's like, 
I've been on omeprazole for 15 years. Do I really need it? And we just aren't great at reviewing that, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Um, a viewer in Rapid City is wondering what is normal for how often to have a bowel movement? Is every three days abnormal or considered an issue? We addressed this a little yeah, bit, but we, can you review yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so kind of three per day to three per week, but mm -hmm. it's if you're not uh, making sure you're feeling as though you empty out completely, you're not straining, you're not spending an excessive amount of time mm -hmm. in the bathroom, um, those would be some of the things that we would want to kind of follow up on. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, we have a viewer in Sioux Falls wondering if we could discuss C. diff. What are the causes? What is the treatment? And what are the outlooks for someone who has it? So um, C. diff is fairly common. Where, when do we usually see this, Teresa? What? We usually see C. diff after antibiotic use. Yeah. Um, and so it ends up being a lot of diarrhea uh, treated then with antibiotics. Uh, more of a different right, different right. antibiotics, different <laughs> antibiotics. More of a medical um, yeah. diagnosis and treatment, and so. Uh, Oh, yeah, I know yeah, it's out there and it can be frustrating. There can be yeah. recurrent C. diff and some right. patients will really struggle. Mm -hmm. uh, we also perform stool transplants. So yeah. we take healthy donor stool and mm -hmm. we put it inside the colon to kind of repopulate. Mm -hmm. um, and people have done that for thousands of years and it works. So, mm -hmm. but that's only after a patient has tried and failed three different rounds of an antibiotic for C. diff. Gotcha, gotcha. So if you've had recurrences, it's important to sort of take that next step and maybe see a specialist about that. Um, we had a, a viewer ask if anyone has heard of the book Fiber Fueled, and if so, what do, would we think of that person's advice? I've not heard of it. I have anyone? not. Okay, no. I'm sorry, that's an easy one. Um, a viewer's wondering if we can explain, um, oh, I think they mean collagenous colitis, is I think what I'm interpreting this is. Um, this person is having uh, trouble getting information about collagenous colitis. Sure. So can you tell us a little yeah, bit about so that? Yeah, so collagenous colitis is a form of microscopic colitis. Mm -hmm. So I go in, this patient's having a lot of diarrhea, we perform a colonoscopy, everything looks normal to the eye, but underneath the microscope, that collagen band is thickened, mm -hmm. and that prevents water from being reabsorbed. Um, we see this, uh, unfortunately, in middle-aged women. Mm -hmm. It can be related to certain medications such as ibuprofen, aspirin Aleve, medicines for depression, mm -hmm. proton pumping inhibitors. It can be associated with, um, and its brother, uh, lymphocytic colitis yeah. can be associated with celiac disease as well. Mm. Um, so we would perform testing for that. And then treatment often involves a mild steroid called budesonide or Enticort. And it's a nuisance diarrhea because it comes back 50% yeah. of the time. It can be very frustrating to treat. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, a Brookings man is thankful for a colon cancer screening he received before it was too late. Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt sat down with him to hear his story. Former South Dakota State University baseball player and lifelong Brookings resident Billy McMacken was hesitant to get his colonoscopy when he turned 50 years old in 2019. However, something told him to do it. You just never know. But I had felt wonderful. But I got in touch with my doctor and said uh, that, I, that I'd like to do a colonoscopy. Um, could, could you help me set it up? He had the screening done within a week. It was a quick and easy process, but some unexpected news came from his doctor. It appeared to be cancer. There appeared to be a tumor. Um, they would have to sample it, and uh, pathology would determine whether it was cancerous or not. Um, this was on a Thursday, and our doctor said, I really wouldn't know till Monday officially, but he, his advice was, was hope for the best, prepare for the worst. It was confirmed to be colon cancer and developed to stage 3 within 10 to 15 days. 
The treatment plan included chemoradiation, followed by surgery. I am, you know, a little more than two years later, uh, no cancer in my body right now, feeling great. Um, so I, I'm very lucky. I feel real blessed. Uh, and if, if, in looking back, if it wasn't for that decision to get a screening, um, I don't know what would have happened. McMacken says the recovery was tough at first, but has gotten much better. Now it's, I'm to checkups every six months. I do blood work, um, and then if that's fine, then six months later I do a CT scan. He has made it his mission to educate others about the importance of getting screened. There is just no reason uh, to not do it. And I think um, 20 to 30 people have either texted me, emailed me, written me cards telling me that they have gotten screenings because of me, because of my story. He says he should officially be cancer-free after five years in remission if there are no complications. Hopefully three years from now I'm getting the blessing of, of truly being cancer-free. Thanks, Billy, for helping us with that segment. Um, in, interestingly, on this topic, we have a viewer who wants to know about accuracy of a virtual colonoscopy and if the results can be fully trusted. This person had difficulty, it sounds like, with colonoscopy because of a twisty gut, they wrote. Um, so what is a virtual colonoscopy or a CT colonography? Who should, we don't use them very often, right, Christy? No, it's yeah. been quite a while since I've ordered one. Yeah. Um, so patients who are unable to go sedation have difficulty with um, the prep perhaps mm -hmm. or have had a challenging incomplete colonoscopy. Mm -hmm. So it is a CT scan that patient still has to prep, drink mm -hmm. that half gallon or gotcha. um, a bit of Miralax and Gatorade. Mm -hmm. It's very good for polyps less than one centimeter in size mm -hmm. so it is reliable. However, if we find a polyp, that person will still have to undergo a colonoscopy yeah. to remove that polyp. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so okay for screening if it's clear, mm -hmm. but then you got to kind of move on and go get the polyps if you see them. Mm -hmm. um, Teresa, let's talk a little bit about gallbladder disease. We haven't hit that yet. I see this so commonly. Um, tell us about what symptoms people might get if they're having problems with their gallbladder and how we figure that out. Okay, so gallbladder disease is extremely common. About 5 million people have their gallbladder taken out every year. Um, symptoms can be super variable. Some people have the classic symptoms of this, what we call biliary colic, where they eat something and then 20 minutes to a couple of hours later, they start having severe pain. Mm -hmm. The pain can be in the upper abdomen, uh, more to the right side usually, but sometimes right in the middle, and it can even go around to the back. Mm -hmm. um, they'll describe it as this pain where they just cannot get comfortable. Mm -hmm. And the pain can last anywhere from just you know 20 minutes mm -hmm. to several hours. Mm -hmm. Usually is accompanied by nausea um, and sometimes vomiting. Uh, usually no fevers or chills, and then the pain just will go away on its own. Mm -hmm. uh, other people have more of a functional problem with the gallbladder, and so their symptoms can be a little bit more vague. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes that bloating that we had talked about before where you know they just don't feel good after a meal uh, and then sometimes they describe the squeezing sensation mm -hmm. um, and so very variable but um, some classic symptoms in there too. Sure and how how do we look at the gallbladder how do you figure out if 
the gallbladder is the cause of someone's symptoms in those cases? So there's some tests that can be done for the gallbladder. Mm -hmm. um, the first one and the easiest one to do is an ultrasound, and that shows us more of the structure of the gallbladder, if the person has stones, mm -hmm. if the wall is thickened. We sure. can look at the ducts that connect the liver, gallbladder, pancreas mm -hmm. to the small intestine and see if they're dilated at all. Um, then if that would be normal, we do go on to do a HIDA scan, which is a scan that shows us more of the function of the gallbladder. And so we use a, it's nuclear medicine and we use a tracer that goes into the gallbladder and then use another medication that's mimicking them eating. Mm. And so it makes the gallbladder contract and when the gallbladder contracts, we are able to assess how well it's contracting. And if that's all abnormal and we think, oh, their symptoms are bad enough, then you right. talk about surgery, then right? Then we talk about surgery, yeah. exactly. Common surgery that you do. Mm -hmm. um, we had a Facebook viewer who uh, asked if you start, if you had the start of Barrett's esophagus and are taking Protonic, so a brand name for a proton pump inhibitor, uh, but you don't need another scope for three years. Is it common to wait that long? So tell, what's Barrett's esophagus and what is appropriate monitoring sure. for that? Sure, so Barrett's esophagus is replacement of the normal lining of the esophagus with stomach lining. It kind of starts to creep up the mm -hmm. esophagus. Um, and it is a precancerous condition. And it's pretty rare for it to change into cancer mm -hmm. in women. We mm -hmm. typically see Barrett's in men, 60 years old, smokers, drinkers. Uh, Protonics, pentoprazole is a perfect medication, mm -hmm. and yes, guidelines say after uh, that patient has had an endoscopy mm -hmm. or EGD, it is appropriate to wait three years for mm -hmm. the next uh, upper scope because the rate of that turning into cancer, if it's what we call short segment, um, is very low, less than 0.5% per year if it's gotcha. less than three centimeters. Okay. And these are people that probably we shouldn't take off their proton no. pump inhibitors, right? There that are some people that should exactly. stay on them. Exactly. Yeah. And it's really the only thing that will help prevent uh, esophageal cancer. Yeah. Good. Um, we have a viewer from Mobridge who said um, they have an overactive bladder, their doctor suggests surgery. So I don't know if we're gonna get, be able to hit bladder questions here. How about, do you have any um, advice for people who maybe wake up in the night with bowel movements? Is that? That's a warning sign. Yeah. So I, that patient would, I would recommend uh, talking to your primary care provider and probably a colonoscopy or further workup of that symptom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, we also have uh, someone from Watertown who wonders if 11 days is too long between bowel movements. That's probably abnormal, right? That's a little bit long. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be surprising for someone to go that long and not have pain, right. I think, right? right. And other symptoms. Um, good. So we have um, another question talking about abdominal hernias. So okay. another common thing that Teresa deals with. Um, mm -hmm. So what's a hernia? What kind of types of hernias are there? There are a lot of different types yeah. of hernias. Um, <laughs> the a hernia is a hole in the strong layer of the abdomen that we call the fascia. Um, it is the connective tissue layer that kind of gives our abdomen shape. Mm -hmm. So our muscles are surrounded by connective tissue mm -hmm. and a, a common places for people to get hernias are in the growing area or the inguinal region mm -hmm. as well as at the umbilicus or mm -hmm. the belly button. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason being is because there were holes there to begin with when we were developing mm -hmm. and so then as so on males the testicles start up in the abdomen mm -hmm. and then they go down into the scrotum mm -hmm. and so there had to be a hole there for that to go through mm -hmm. and so if it doesn't close completely they're at risk for developing a hernia yeah yeah and sometimes we do surgery how mm -hmm. do you advise people with a hernia whether they should or shouldn't have surgery 
well, taking the patient into consideration yeah. first, of course. Um, you know, some people are good surgical candidates and some people are not. Mm -hmm. um, but if they are a good surgical candidate, then it really goes based on their symptoms. Yeah. Um, if the hernia is bothering them at all, then it is a reason to fix it. Also, if it's getting larger, mm -hmm. you know, a hernia has a high or has a higher possibility of staying fixed if. Mm -hmm we fix it when it's smaller rather than a larger hernia that then has to be pulled together and has more tension on it. Okay, good. Um, we have a question, another esophagus question. So a Facebook message um, who, someone who has eosinophilic esophagitis being treated with omeprazole, 40 milligrams twice a day. Um, is that someone, should they stay on it forever? How long should they stay on it? Is there something else that they should mm -hmm. take? Yeah, Just EOE, yeah. we shorten it up because that's a mouthful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a common condition we're seeing, especially in younger men, mm -hmm. often associated with allergies and asthma. So. Mm -hmm. Does that person need to be on something? Yes, yeah. twice daily, it depends on symptoms. Sure. What we worry about in these individuals is over time scarring. Mm. And that means we have to stretch the esophagus. So um, that patient will need follow-up and need to be seen by a specialist or mm -hmm. a surgeon to help um, monitor that EOE. Yeah, but another person that should stay on a yes. PPI long-term um, and probably not stop it. Um, you mentioned scarring and mm -hmm. stretching the esophagus. So tell me what, what symptoms people People might come in with if they do have some scarring or what we might call a stricture. Right. What, what so that do people get? intermittent sensation of food getting kind of stuck mm -hmm. as a person is swallowing. It's not one where it goes down the wrong pipe and you cough, but truly they'll point and mm -hmm. say it's not going anywhere. And sometimes people will try to force it up and regurgitate mm -hmm. it and vomit. And sometimes it, it is stuck and we have to go in in the middle of the night or <laughs> afternoon and, and pull out that uh, you know piece of chicken mm -hmm. and et cetera. And so those are some symptoms or pills that get stuck is another common uh, yeah. symptom. Yeah, and so when people come to their doctor and tell them about that, just by hearing it, we don't know if that's scarring, if it could be a mass mm -hmm. or something more concerning. So really, we, we send them to the specialist to mm -hmm. think about a procedure. If you see scar scarring or when you're doing that EG day, what, what, what might you do? Do you, how do you stretch it, Teresa? We're able to stretch it um, with a, a balloons mm -hmm. that goes down into the, where the narrowing is and then we're able to pump that up with water and stretch it and watch while we're doing it to mm -hmm. make sure that it's not stretching too much at one time and also that we are getting a good stretch of the area. Mm -hmm and probably take samples most of the time of tissue, mm -hmm. make sure there's not something like cancer right. or something more concerning. Great, um, we have um, someone asking about gastroparesis. So can you tell us what is gastroparesis? So, yeah, it's yeah. A, a Greek word for slowing of the, the gut. So mm -hmm. the gut just doesn't wanna do its job of emptying properly. And so patients will feel full, mm -hmm. what we call early satiety, nausea, abdominal pain, mm -hmm. bloat mm -hmm. uh, again. And so why do people get it? The most common reason is we don't know, mm -hmm. um, but it often is associated with diabetes. Mm -hmm. We can see it with medications as well and also with marijuana. And so mm -hmm. that's also something we're starting to hear about more frequently. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a great point. I think a lot of people think of marijuana as something that helps nausea and vomiting, but in some cases it can actually cause a vomiting syndrome. Yes, is that right? It, yeah, yeah, something mm -hmm. called cyclic vomiting syndrome. And it becomes a really vicious a cycle because mm -hmm. they're nauseous, they smoke more marijuana, right. they feel a little better, they eat a lot more, but the stomach is not moving. Right. So it, it is a tough situation. Yeah, my experience people don't usually believe you when you say the cure is to stop it. Um, okay, we have someone who had a grandson with chronic vomiting and they haven't been diagnosed with a cause. What causes chronic vomiting maybe in kids or teens? 
Can you think of any major things, Teresa? I don't know the age of this child, but yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, I, you know, it can be tough. It can be right? very challenging. Yeah. I mean, gallbladder, yeah. EOE, ulceration, even constipation. Sure. Um, and you're talking to yeah, an adult GI. So yeah. <laughs> I know. it's not really fair. Um, but I mean, vomiting is not fun. No. So usually people don't tolerate that for very long mm -hmm. before they're seeking out more care about that. Um, we had a viewer who sent in an email wondering if we could talk about IBS or. Um, irritable bowel syndrome, symptoms and treatment. So can you tell us a yeah, little bit about so IBS? IBS is really common, 10% yeah. of the population um, will have yeah. IBS. So it's change in stool pattern associated with abdominal pain. And that stool pattern could be diarrhea or constipation or yeah. sometimes a combination of both. Mm -hmm. And so the pain typically will go away after that bowel movement. Mm -hmm. Treatment, we start with looking at diet. Sure. Um, and then there are medicines. So if a person is having diarrhea, we can slow things down. On the flip side, we will treat constipation as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. and different than IBS, what confusing is IBD. So right. we have like a minute left. What's the short yeah. version of what's IBD and how's it different? Inflammatory bowel yeah. disease, bloody diarrhea, and abdominal pain, an autoimmune condition, which mm -hmm. would need a, a lot more um, in, intervention and uh, attention. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and so often blood and pain exactly. are more, more prevalent with mm -hmm. um, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, we did have one question about, is smoking a risk factor for colon cancer? like it is for lung and other cancers, mm -hmm. Teresa? Yeah. Yes, just the carcinogens that are in smoke, in the mm -hmm. tobacco products, it makes it a higher risk. Yeah, mm -hmm. so numerous cancers can be related to smoking and sounds like colon cancer is one of them. Um, are, do all colon cancers require chemotherapy and, and the whole gamut? Or if we find it early, can we treat it just with a surgery? Yeah, there yeah. are some times when it's found early that it is able to be treated just with surgery. Um, mm -hmm. You still do need to follow with an oncologist, of course, mm -hmm. after a colon cancer is found. Um, you also need to have colonoscopies on a regular basis after having a colon cancer. Yeah higher risk for not only that one coming back, right. but developing Another a new one, one in the future, mm -hmm. right? Great, all right. We have a winner of our question drawing tonight. Um, this is Annie from Oneida, South Dakota. Thank you, Annie, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. In the last couple of years, I have developed a renewed awe and appreciation of our scientists around the world who work for entire careers to advance science and medicine in their laboratories and beyond. One such scientist is Dr. Barry Marshall. Marshall is an Australian physician scientist who in the early 1980s, along with his cohort, Dr. Robin Warren, initiated a paradigm shift in the world's understanding of gastrointestinal disease when they discovered the bacterium Helicobacter pylori. Prior to that, peptic ulcer disease was thought to be due entirely to lifestyle factors and stress. 
Marshall and Warren were ultimately able to show that H. pylori played a major role in maybe 80% of ulcers worldwide at that time. H. pylori is an unusual bacterium in that it can grow and thrive in a highly acidic environment, like the stomach. And for that reason, it was difficult to grow in culture. It was found to be widespread around the world, partly due to poor water sanitation systems. The bacteria can invade the surface of the stomach and duodenum, causing inflammation of the stomach, or gastritis, ulcers, and even rarely, stomach cancer. We now know that if H. pylori is a causative factor in a patient's stomach ulcers, eradication of the bacteria is an essential part of curing the patient's disease. Now, here's the greatest piece of this science story. At the time Marshall and Warren made their discovery, the worldwide scientific community was skeptical that H. pylori was an important factor in peptic ulcer disease. H. pylori did not grow in mouse or rat stomachs, so there was not a good way to study it in a traditional lab. Famously, in 1984, Marshall underwent biopsy of his own stomach, proving he did not carry the bacteria nor have any stomach disease. Then, he drank a beaker of H. pylori culture broth. What followed was an acute gastric illness, and after two weeks, he had another biopsy showing proven H. pylori infection and gastritis. He then cured himself with an antibiotic and bismuth. After Marshall's case study was published, much further research ensued. Today, we can detect H. pylori in our patients with several non-invasive testing strategies, and if detected, treat them with a combination of antibiotics and acid-reducing medication. Surgery to remove a portion of ulcerated stomach, commonplace prior to his discovery, is now incredibly rare in the developed world. In 2005, Marshall and Warren were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology for their detective work. I wonder, had Dr. Marshall not risked his own health for his experiment, would our understanding have shifted so quickly? Maybe, maybe not, but the story sure wouldn't be as captivating. very sincere thank you to Christy and Teresa for volunteering to visit with us tonight about the problems and treatments of our digestive system. A reminder for all of us, we are entering the influenza season here in the upper Midwest. If you're getting a COVID vaccine, it is safe to get the flu vaccine at the same time. Please make plans to get your flu shot soon. As we continue to celebrate our 20th season, we invite you, our viewers, to tell us how this program has made a difference in your life please email or mail your story to the addresses on the screen. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. And as we celebrate our 20th season of truthful, tested, and timely medical information, from all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people.
Few things warm the heart like a mom with a newborn. Unfortunately, disease, accidents, and domestic violence pose risk. Protecting mom, next time on Call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. I grew up on a farm near Wessington Springs, South Dakota. All my life, I've been an advocate for rural communities. One of the major challenges we face is providing reliable and easy access to primary health care. Hello, I'm Dr. Tom Dean. After completing medical training nearly 50 years ago, my wife Kathy and I came back to Wessington Springs to provide health care and to raise our family. Just like you, we love our small town. I serve on the Healing Words Foundation Board. This year, we celebrate the 20th season of the Prairie Dock. Rick and Joni Holmes started this mission of providing objective, evidence-based healthcare information free of charge to everyone, especially to people in rural areas who may have limited access to healthcare professionals. Truthful, tested, timely medical information for 20 seasons. That's the Prairie Dock, and it's up to us to help to continue that legacy. Please give to the Healing Words Foundation. Go to prairiedoc.org and make your donation today. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Dock has been provided by... Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Dock on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Dock as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions. Brookings Health System. Ophthalmology Limited. South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians. Avera Heart Hospital. First Bank and Trust. Dakota Allergy and Asthma. Vance Thompson Vision. Monument Health. Black Hills Medical Society. Brookings, Madison, Flander District Medical Society. Peer District Medical Society. Yankton District Medical Society. Orthopedic Institute. Lake Ponset Salem Academy. Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy. Dakota Bank. South Dakota American College of Physicians. And Swift Hill Communications. <laughs>